Hello and welcome to Heroes of the Galaxy, a limited series where we celebrate the women of the Star Wars universe. My name's Millicent and each week I'll be joined by a special guest to talk about the story and legacy of a female character from the movies, games, books and more. This week I'm joined by Becca Harrison, academic, author and film historian. Becca is the writer behind the upcoming BFI Classics book on The Empire Strikes Back and has written extensively about Star Wars in regards to class, gender and more. She's joining me today to talk about one of our favourite rebels, Jin Erso. Born during the Clone Wars, ex-criminal Jin Erso became a pivotal member of the Rebel Alliance against the Empire, when she retrieved her father's plans for the Death Star during the Battle of Scarif. She was recruited by the Alliance to find her childhood guardian Saul Guerrero on Jeddah, where she learnt of her father's plans for a hidden weakness within the Death Star structure. Her sacrifice during the Battle of Scarif was not in vain, as it led to a new hope, where Luke and the Rebels defeated the Empire using the plans. So let's now introduce our guest and get chatting. Hi, Becca. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Heroes of the Galaxy. No problem. Thanks very much for inviting me. So this week we're going to be talking about the lovely Jin Erso. But before we get into the character and the chat about that, I just want to start with a bit more about you. So why don't you tell me about your very first experience with the Star Wars universe, if you can remember? Uh, well, there's a, a kind of discrepancy between my first memory of it and what my parents remember. <laughs> of me first coming into contact with it. Uh, so my first actual memory of it is um, sitting, <clears throat> sorry, I've got terrible hay fever. So if my throat goes occasionally, that's all it is. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I think it was sitting in my dad's living room and I remember being on the floor and I think playing with something. So probably having some toys or like Lego or whatever it was. And I can't have been more than about three or four I think I was really really young and uh, it was Return of the Jedi that was on the television and like I have no idea if it was I mean it would have been a rented VHS at that point in time because this would have been maybe like 89 90 um, so it would have been like we, there's no way we could have I think afforded to have bought the VHS at that point um, so it was probably a rented VHS or it was maybe a TV broadcast. I've not quite like sort of gone back to work out which yeah. it would have. Um, although obviously as like a film historian, this like this fascinates me no end and like mm. formats. But um, so I think it was just like on the TV in the corner and was of absolutely no interest to me whatsoever until the, the speeder bike chase through the forest on Endor. See, so yeah, I think it was seeing Princess Leia on the speeder bike, sort of racing through the trees. And then, of course, she kind of crash, crash lands and we get introduced to the Ewoks. Yes. And then from that, there's that kind of, in my head, I mean, I don't think it actually translates to what happens in the film, but my memory of it is that you get this kind of extended part of the film where it's Leia, the Ewoks, and there's quite a lot of R2 and C-3PO. And just being like entranced by these particular characters in the woods. Mm-hmm. And that was my like kind of first introduction to Star Wars and the thing that sort of grabbed me. Um, and then like I actually, even people kind of my age or even a little bit older, I tend to find don't remember this, but there were about, I think between two and four se- seasons of a animated cartoon just called Ewoks. Really? It was, yeah, there was like Lucasfilm kind of cashing in on the sort of marketability of these like fluffy bear yeah. creatures to kids. So like I kind of in my head, I think of them in, in a sort of canon of like almost, well, kind of ironically Disney cartoons of things like gummy bears <laughs> and um, what else would have been that era? Like those kind of like My Little Pony maybe, but like yeah. for me, the Ewoks sort of sit within 
that part of my childhood sort of screen culture engagement enjoyment yeah that's interesting because a previous guest Clarice also said that like when she was younger one of her first memories was like the Ewoks spin-off movies so it seems that like the Ewoks were everywhere and I just had no idea (laughs) yeah I think I can't remember what there's a I mean there's two features and there's like Caravan of Courage I think it's called and (laughs) there's another one but there's also you know I actually think there might be a kind of feature length animated Ewok thing as well. I'm gonna have to seek this remember, out. <laughs> like, super rare and I, I loved this thing as a kid like I loved it so much and I would watch the cartoon over and over and over again and so my parents had like taped it off the TV and then I, I would that. just like watch it on a loop. I think it drove them to distraction <laughs> um, but I, I seem to remember that there was uh, an extended episode. Um, I mean most of them are just you know cute bears do stuff on Endor and then there's like a whole other range of like kind of alien creatures that they've introduced yeah Uh, but there is at least one episode where the Empire come back to Endor or I don't know if it's maybe even like a a prequel Hmm. to Return of the Jedi where they start building a satellite or something I'm not I'm not quite sure but that sounds really interesting though I'd love to see them kind of occupying the planet before it all went down but it's interesting because even so the return of the Jedi is probably the Star Wars film I've watched the least out of like all of them but like one of my strongest memories of just having it on the background in the tv is Leia in that camo poncho on the bikes with the Ewoks because I think the Ewoks are just such memorable characters and I have a little shih tzu now and we like to, you know, he looks like an Ewok because I think they're based on Shih Tzus. So we, I love him so much. And every time I look at him, I just see him in that little kind of cap thing. And we want to get him a costume so bad, but we'd never get him in it. He just like chew it up. <laughs> if I ever manage it, I promise I'll send you a picture. <laughs> I, I, I hope that you manage it. But like, I, I mean, I remember all of the Ewoks names. I no way. can tell you character traits of them. I know what happened in the different episodes. I can, I'm not going to do it, but I can still <laughs> sing. There's like two different, um, two different theme tunes. I think the first two seasons have this uh, more kind of like authentically Star Wars feel to them. Mm-hmm. And it's a, I mean, there's a whole thing around race and cultural appropriation and the kind of, um, the racial othering of the Ewoks as a kind of tribal entity and the, the kind of the problems yeah. that go with that and the theme tune for the first two series kind of sits in that like firmly in that territory um and then after two seasons it becomes really disneyfied and then they get this way poppier catchier um sort of appearance and the animation style changes slightly um but yeah i mean i, I still know all the words to it but is that like when people can recite the whole of pie as a party trick and your party trick is the ewok theme tune <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, it doesn't come out very often, sadly. <laughs> People are less impressed by it. I hope I get to see it one day. Um, so obviously, after you watched that as a child on the TV and you became obsessed with the Ewoks, when was the first time you really started to feel like a Star Wars fan? You know, where you watched all the movies and you became a huge, like a real part of the community. When was that kind of turning point for you? Weirdly, I mean, the weird thing is now, I still don't necessarily feel like I'm a sort of fully signed up member of the like Star Wars fan community. What? I always feel like so on the margins of Star Wars fandom. Um, but you've written a book about Star Wars and you're writing a second one, right? I know. And like, I've written quite a lot of, you know, like articles and reviews and- I literally um, tell people you're a Star Wars scholar. That's literally how I describe you. Like, I mean, I would describe myself as a Star Wars scholar, but I oddly, yeah, I, I've never felt like I'm kind of like really in the fandom. And I mm. think it's because I'm like really marginal to a lot of the conversations that go on on Twitter, which is like one of the big kind of yeah spaces for it, I guess. And that partly that's because I don't have the, I feel like it takes a lot of investment of time and energy. Mm-hmm. And there's like so many other things that I'm doing and thinking about all the time. I've also, I mean, there's a lot of women in that fandom and a lot of more kind of marginalized people and a lot of like women of color doing like amazing work in the Star Wars fandom. And so I like to kind of keep in touch with what they're doing. And it's often those people that I feel more of an affinity with. 
yeah and had conversations with or like we'll be on you know in like in the dms or um in like a discord group or something but not having like really super hyper visible conversations mm. um and that's partly because of the the trolling that goes on and and there's still so much gatekeeping and like do you know this much about star wars yeah. compared to something else and that doesn't excite me but i think also because i'm because i'm writing about it as a franchise and i'm thinking about fandom from a an academic and journalistic perspective i sort of don't i don't know if it's like right to get like too like yeah heavily involved in those spaces like I kind of want to think about the ethics of that and also like how can I how can I maintain some critical distance from it yeah I can totally understand that because a lot of your work does feel very not I don't know if this is the right word but like not investigative but very thorough and theorized rather than you know the kind of fun fluff pieces that uh a lot of people tend to write about these kind of subjects so like marvel and star wars people who write about that kind of thing it tends to be like fun readable short kind of things and your writing comes at it from like you say a much more critical distance and you ask really interesting questions and i suppose there is that distance that you need to keep to kind of keep doing that without feeling sucked into the kind of disney-fied thing i guess and also you're right in saying that it takes a lot of investment because i found you know, you have those anxieties about like, am I a real fan and stuff like that? Because if you can't afford to put so much of your time and investment into something, you feel like you're always kind of on the peripheral and that kind of thing. So like before I started a Star Wars podcast, I was like, you know, like, am I a real fan until I've gone to every comic con and got a really expensive costume and all that kind of stuff. And those are weird questions that I find I'm asking myself a lot. So it's interesting that you say, you know, that you've articulated that. I think as well with a lot of this stuff you just sort of have to do it hmm. and when I started the way you know that it's all the stuff that you realize you don't know when you you think okay maybe I've got like maybe I'm brave enough to do this and take this project on and actually weirdly like my route into writing about Star Wars was Rogue One and was thinking about Jin. Oh, okay um, and then it just kind of grew into this other big thing um one of the things that I sort of didn't realise I didn't know until I started doing it was, oh, I'm kind of really familiar with the Star Wars texts. I've watched them over and over and over again. I I think I first felt like I became a Star Wars fan when I was maybe about 10 or 11 or I don't like that kind of age. I sort mm. of mash up my personal history in my head so I never <laughs> know exactly when anything was. Um, but yeah, like that didn't necessarily mean I felt like I was in the fandom, but I felt like a Star Wars fan by the time I was that age. Yeah. But then I still, when I started writing about it, was like, oh, I don't know how to spell anything. <laughs> like, I don't know the conventions for writing about Star Wars and how the word lightsaber looks on a page. Yeah. Or like, so I find myself even now constantly tripping over myself and having to like look stuff up on Wikipedia and like using a lot of the online resources that people have created because other people just like have this like encyclopedic knowledge of Star Wars. And like, that's another thing that often makes me feel a bit like reticent about doing the work is I'm like, someone's going to call me out and say that I don't know anything because I spelled, I don't know, Jakku wrong or something. Yeah. Do you know, like there's going to be some way that I'm undermined in my authority because I didn't get some minor detail right. Yeah. And it's such a, weird thing that we have those anxieties and I know I mean I wonder if men in this industry have those same feelings because you know there's a lot about being a woman in academia or a woman in journalism in general where you feel like you're constantly kind of second guessing or even interrogated a bit more especially like I think I read the other day people are unearthing these old articles from like gaming magazines in the 90s and there's literally an article where Charlie Brooker um interviewed a few women and they were like you know what women have to say never really matters but we thought for this article we might as well ask them about games and see like why don't they play games and it's like I feel like there's still uh, little bits of that attitude around where it's like women's opinions on xyz don't really matter and I only feel like in the past maybe two or three years women's opinions on Star Wars have started to be like properly heard and understood. Yeah and it's such a shame because say, there are so many interesting critical 
analytical important voices in Star Wars fandom of black women, queer women, non-binary people, like trans people, like there's just so many different perspectives mm. and they're all there and people have opinions. It's just whose opinion makes it to the top of the Twitter algorithm or yeah. gets commissioned by, a, you know, like a, a kind of online culture website or whatever it is. I mean, it, it was really weird for me, you know, like I've just written a book, I've got another one that I'm working on. And in both of those, you know, you have to put a proposal together and you're sort of like outlining what already exists and like what you're gonna add. And it was really like kind of baffling to me that I was like, I can't find like monograph, like full length books by a single author on Star Wars written by women. And it feels, I was like, no, it must be like, it must be me. Like I must be yeah. a, being a bad researcher. And I, you know, I probably, there is probably stuff I've missed, but I, I mean, there's not much out there. Are you talking like, like academic proper book books? Cause I think a lot of um, Star Wars books written yeah. by women. Yeah. seem to be like children's books and things like that, which are amazing, but you're right in saying that a lot of the kind of theories or big kind of compendiums do tend to be by guys. So I'm really, really excited to pick up your BFI Classics book come October. Like, so excited to like buy it for everyone I know. Um, but yeah, and this the other book that you're writing, I'm assuming is very under wraps, right? Not yes and no. Like it's, I mean, it's kind of evolving in terms of what it is. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, I'm still not 100% sure. I mean, it's thinking <laughs> about the relationship between the Star Wars franchise and code as it like and different kinds of code but like ostensibly the kind of coming of the digital era and the increasing reliance on computers and software systems but like I'm trying to in a very kind of theoretical way think about how differently we might read the Star Wars films if we think about them using the language of software studies and computing rather than uh, the kind of structures of film language. Wow, that sounds super interesting. So, I mean, I'm, but then there's also like, that's one part of it, but then there's also a lot of stuff of just like recovering the cultural history of the franchise. Yeah. Because one of the things that, frustrate well I mean it's one of you know it's like it's a frustration but it's also great because that it doesn't exist because it's given me like so much space to do this work um the way that Star Wars tends to be written about is either I mean mostly it's fan studies stuff which is great and it's really interesting um but that you know that's a particular approach where it's thinking about how do people understand respond to be fans of perform fandom of Star Wars mm -hmm. um that's like the kind of biggest kind of thinking about it. There's some kind of textual analysis work that thinks about gender and race and colonialism, um, geography, religion, philosophy. There's nothing really out there that I've found yet that does the cultural history of the franchise. Hmm. So thinking about like what are the production histories outside of what the Lucasfilm official production histories are in those big kind of fancy coffee table books. Like what do the production histories look like? How do they, how do they fit into our understanding of the period, the kind of historical period when they were being made? Yeah. Um, what, how do we read the films in relation to everything that was going on around the time of the production and in relation to the aesthetics of film history up to that point or um, what does the exhibition and distribution of Star Wars look like? Um, but yeah, so I'm like trying to do some of that work and like going into going into film archives and looking through like the daily press from the period, like the stuff I just did on the Empire Strikes Back mm -hmm. covered. I got to like some of the topics that I ended up covering. I was like, this is not what I was sort of <laughs> expecting when I started. But I'm like thinking about the Cold War, the military industrial complex wow. and the relationship between the, the production of The Empire Strikes Back and who they were outsourcing work to, which often involves um, 
Brit like British and US military forces. Like loads of the filmmakers have um, military backgrounds. There's, you know, all sorts of permits and um, vehicle licensing and things like that that goes on with the Norwegian like version of the RAF with the UK. It's like that like there's stuff on trade unions. It's like it's just like endlessly fascinating to me. What films mean in terms of like our daily lives and at the kind of broader culture outside of Star Wars. Because like you say, like outside of those gorgeous like coffee table books written by Lucasfilm officials, I guess, there's not much about the production history. And when it's always written by the people who made it, like it's obviously going to be put out in a certain way to promote a certain image or feel. So like coming at it when you're not hired by Lucasfilm and stuff and you're you're an outsider in that perspective and you're doing your research and telling these stories, there's probably so much more to uncover that will be so fascinating to look into. So that's, I'm really excited about that. That sounds really cool. Um, okay, let's bring it back to the movies a little bit. I love that tangent, but yes, Star Wars movies, let's do it. <laughs> so after you obviously became a bit of a fan at around 10, 11, and you know, you watched the original trilogy, you watched the, the prequels and everything like that. How did it feel when The Force Awakens came back and revived the Star Wars universe on screen? What was that like for you? Oh God, it was so exciting. I remember like I saw the film I put off seeing the film until I was with uh, a particular friend of mine Liz who's a, a massive Star Wars fan um, and I think we saw the film on Boxing Day back in I was in Kent like I'd gone home to see family and stuff um, so there was a kind of nostalgia around like it was Christmas and I'd gone yeah. home and I remember like I had it was because it was Boxing Day I had like the worst hangover <laughs> like it was raging like I'd barely made it through breakfast it was I was like it was a struggle and I was like in the cinema with you know like the smell of popcorn and it was dark and it was really stuffy and I was thinking like I just I don't know if I can do this and then the second that like first blast of the Star Wars music like filled the the auditorium and the second like it it like Star Wars appeared on the screen I was just like everything disappeared and my hangover went and I was like <laughs> honestly like I, I can't remember ever being that excited sitting in the cinema before that's brilliant it's like this just in Star Wars cures hangovers like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> amazing what did you think then now the sequel trilogy is over what do you think on the whole like the three movies together bringing Star Wars back do you think not necessarily do you think they did a good job and stuff because I know it's all very subjective but like how did they make you feel and the new characters they brought us and everything like that how did that affect your relationship with the, the movies? I mean, it's, oh, That's a really good question and it's one like I, I've kind of given it some thought and I feel like I feel like the trilogy is still too recent for me to really yeah. know how I feel in response to it like I'm still too in it to have that sort of like slightly pulled back ah okay this is like this is what mm -hmm. I think this like trilogy did or how it worked or didn't um I mean for the most part I was really invested in the characters like I think they did a you know issues around how much screen time certain characters got <laughs> and like controversies around story arcs aside the characters themselves I thought were all like really you know actually quite well rounded as characters in a blockbuster trilogy yeah. I felt like I believed in them all I was invested in them I mean I thoroughly enjoyed it I mean I don't know if I necessarily again this is one of those reasons why I'm like maybe I'm just not not a proper Star Wars fan <laughs> but you know I love it and I'm invested in it but it's also just a film yeah and just a, a trilogy of films and it's just a franchise like it's not the most important thing in my life and the decision that the filmmakers make in each of those films isn't a life or death situation for me like mm -hmm. I think Star Wars is utterly bonkers <laughs> like it's like it's like being in the Millennium Falcon in Empire and like doing loop the loops and like dodging out of the way of asteroids like that's how it's always treated its story yeah and that's how Always treated it script writing like let's go over here shit something's coming towards us like how are we going to get out of this one oh well we'll just duck it over there like it doesn't 
it's never really made a huge amount of sense. Yeah. And I feel like I'm kind of happy to always just go along for the ride. So I love that. I, I really do. Because I think that's how I felt largely about the rise of Skywalker. Because I know that it has so many issues and I have my own issues with it. And, you know, I was quite upset by certain decisions. But at the end of the day, when it was over, I was like, it's Star Wars. You know, I enjoyed it so much. Even like I went back and saw it a second time, this time by myself. And I found myself like crying the second time because I was just so happy to go back to Star Wars and to be in that world again, even if, you know, they messed a few things up and Rose deserved better and all of that stuff. And obviously Ray's lineage is a whole other thing, but just being in that world and, you know, you can't really apply logic to everything they do. Like you say, it's, it's a mess, but you love it. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, I've seen the rise of Skywalker three times now. I mean, I, you know, obviously I feel like it's, worth noting that I always kind of champion the film I always I enjoyed Mm -hmm. it from the first outing noting its many many problems but I still but and yet I still really enjoyed it and found it like really emotional and like the kind of discourse that went around that like oh it's doing fan service oh it's a bad film because it's doing fan service why is that wrong yeah it's like, like who the film's for if not the fans. In the <laughs> since 1977. Mm-hmm. Like I think I think it's okay for the last film to like pay tribute to some of the characters and to like say thanks to fans for coming along for the ride. And yeah. and also, you know, and actually to say Star Wars is like doing fan service in The Rise of Skywalker completely ignores the fact that they would attempting to do fan service before the first film even came out because they did extensive market research they tested different characters they tested different scenarios they you know the kind of insert at the beginning um a long time ago in a galaxy far far away was um added in after the kind of rough cut of the film was like sort of shown to to audiences or at least they'd seen trailers because people felt like it was too much of a kind of throwaway sci-fi thing that was just an imitation of Star Trek. But they really enjoyed the kind of element of like the um, Arthurian legend. Hmm. So they decided, they were like, oh, well, if we just tell people it's set in the past, they'll invest in it more because that's what people want. That's so interesting. But, like, wow. there's always, like, it's never not done that. Like films have always done that kind of work. Yeah. And I, for me, The Rise of Skywalker feels like actually quite a hopeful quite a hopeful film mm-hmm. I still I, like the the kind of rose problem and the like lack of time she got and the sidelining of Kelly Marie Tran is like grotesque really that said the at the end of the film all the white male characters are dead yeah and I'm like I did like who who honestly saw that coming at the beginning of this of the sequels Hmm. like that's quite a different ending to this franchise than it could have had yeah and I suppose it's a glimpse at like what the future looks like isn't it a future of these like diverse exciting people from all different backgrounds you know like um you've got Rose who's from like a little mining village who's now like a leader in a resistance and everyone kind of coming together and I really liked what you you wrote this incredible long read essay on those feelings that you had about how it ended and the white men and how it treated the women and all of this stuff which I'll be sure to share on the Heroes of the Galaxy Twitter before this episode goes up because I'd love for people to read that because I think you articulated your thoughts on it so so well because you know The Rise of Skywalker did get so much hate and then your review came in like what the first review in the sight and sound of a Star Wars movie by a woman and like you know said this movie's about hope and you you just said it like without caring about anything else and I, I really loved that so yeah wow yeah thank you <laughs> thank you I guess for writing your amazing words um so obviously we want to talk a bit about Rogue One as well and yeah. Jin so Rogue One being like the first sort of official spin-off I guess of this kind of new era what were you expecting from it before you saw it? Um, like a spin-off from the, the trilogy, this was quite new. What, what did you think? I did not have high expectations Ooh, when I went okay. to see Rogue One. I think if I could, it's amazing it's already four years ago. What? Like, I know. <laughs> wow. like, what? How is it already four <laughs> years? Um, 
I seem to remember, I mean, in much the same way that there were kind of issues with Solo and that was like reshot and, you know, they brought in Ron Howard to fix it and all the rest. I, I seem to remember there was some kind of similar narrative around the production of Rogue One where there were like extensive reshoots and everyone expected it to just be a mess and no one thought that it was really going to be you know it was just Disney cashing in yeah did we really need this why did we need this story did we need to fill in this particular gap do we have to explain literally everything about the Star Wars universe (laughs) so I, I think I was a bit ambivalent about it um my I remember going to see it and it was this time with the same friends again. Um, shout out to Liz and Todd, um, <laughs> my, my Disney era Star Wars buddies. Um, and like we'd gone, it was Christmas Eve this time. So we were in London and we'd gone to the pub and like had a bottle of wine, gone to the cinema and bought more wine again, <laughs> I think. And like, so we were, it was the last screening on Christmas Eve. And there was almost no one in the cinema. I think there were maybe like six other people in there aside from us. No way. So, and we were like, you know, kind of joking around and like, oh, this will be a kind of fun, but throwaway Star Wars film. And then it just wasn't. Mm. Like, as anyone who has seen the film knows, that that is not what that film is. Um, and I remember kind of the exposition for me of the film is still a little bit messy. Like, I feel like the setup is quite clunky. Yeah. So it took me maybe like the first 10 minutes or so, I was kind of still like giving the screen some side eye, like, what is this? And then after that, I was like, no, this is, I, it's probably my favourite, my favourite of the the Disney era films. That's brilliant. And there's something specific I did want to talk to you about. And I know you talked a bit about like um, coding in a technological sense, but in regards to Rogue One and other women characters, you wrote this brilliant piece called I Know Because It's Me, which I've got open here for Contingent Magazine on how um, women become archives and the coding of the women in Star Wars and how, you know, they are used as um, like posits for other people's stories. And I was wondering if in regards to Rogue One, you could talk a bit about that for our li- lovely listeners, because I just, I found that point of view so new to me. I was like, whoa, she's totally right. This is really interesting. So, so what do you mean when you say that these women are archives then? So, oh, but like it, there's so much theory like around this that you could go like really, really deep into it. <laughs> um, I mean, one, the kind of simple way of thinking about it is that the men get to tell stories and women become the spaces in which those stories are saved. Mm-hmm. So there was actually, there was a, a kind of clip that I shared uh, like a kind of supercut of Padme in the prequels quite recently, where all she does all the way through the prequels is ask questions, like over and over again. Like every single clip is her directing a question, usually at Anakin. And then his, so that all of her dialogue is set up to receive information from a male character who then gets to explain his ideas, his approach, his perspective, his background, his story. And then she's just there to like soak it up like a sponge so she's acting as almost like a repository of information that he can then kind of share with the audience via her yeah um so and that's a I think a trope that we see like way beyond Star Wars that's quite normal in the way that stories are set up um so that's not particularly new but it is really noticeable in the Star Wars universe that the women tend to be historians, archivists, people recording, documenting the history of men. So mm-hmm. the, the archivist in the, the Jedi um, library in Attack of the Clones is a woman. Um, oh God, I know her name and I've forgotten it. That's frustrating. I hate it when you then have like an unnamed woman. Um, <laughs> Then, then yeah, in Rogue One, and this is what actually attracted me to writing about Star Wars in the first place, because I just finished a big, like, academic history of, like, early British cinema and was looking for something a little bit lighter. Mm. It was more like, oh, what other interests do I have that I could, like, maybe turn to that isn't, like, this big tome about British history? Um, 
But because I'm a film historian and because I work in archives a lot and think about the theory of archiving, Rogue One really spoke to me because you have Jin who is a, she's, you kind of feel a lot of the film through her and it's her experience and it's her point of view that kind of carries us through the narrative. But she goes, when she sees the hologram of her father telling her how to go and find the plans to blow up the Death Star, she, there's only two witnesses to that. Um, there's her and her adopted dad, Saul Guerrero, who then, you know, dies, you know, in the next scene. So she is the only kind of repository of this information. So information that was stored in digital code in the form of this hologram has been passed to her and she's internalized this information. And then she has to convince the rest of the, the rebellion to act on this information. And then once she's done that, she goes to the Imperial Archive at Scarif. So she, you know, she's in this like actual archive space and trying to find a file, which could be anywhere, probably out of like millions of entries that they would have in a library of that size and scale. And then she finds it because the file's name is Stardust and that's what her dad called her. So she's the person that has the information about how to blow up the Death Star and then the information about how to blow up the Death Star is her and that's how she finds it. So it's like a kind of process of self-discovery. Yeah. And her being like located in the archive, but also being the container and being the archive itself. Well, just like galaxy brain moment. (laughs) But I mean, the other... The other thing for me about Rogue One that's really interesting and about Jin in particular is that, you know, the whole thing, like it's a, the whole point of the film is that almost like a kind of adventure narrative to like find the file, like find the thing, find the object. And then they find the object and then she transmits the information. And then as soon as they've, she's transmitted the information, you know, with the like support of and assistance and, like skills of this kind of group of men of color because you know it's a star wars film that doesn't have any white men in those kind of leadership roles so it's all men of color and this white woman and then the second that the information is transmitted we we like essentially cut away from scarif and they're eradicated like they're they they all die and they're erased from the history of star wars like they don't ever get talked about again. And like, that's what happens. Like that's what happens to the narratives of people of color, of women, of marginalized people in historical narratives. Like we forget them and like they become mediated through the words of the men who maybe remember them. But we don't usually get direct access to what they have to say about the past or about their own lived experience. Yeah. So like, yeah, so they're just gone. And it's like, when you think about um, in, I mean, Star Wars is massively historical. It's always referring back to its own history. The, the moment in The Force Awakens when Finn and Rey meet, like they're, like, they're on the Millennium Falcon and they meet Han Solo and they meet Chewie and they're like, oh, like, it was all true. Like the myth, the, the rumors, the, the stories. But the stories that they know are like the heroic, adventure of Luke, Khan and Leia. Yeah. Like they're not saying oh, the stories were true about Bodhi Rook and Cassian Andor and Jin Erso. Like they're just gone. And it's like these white characters who everyone, you know, white characters with the privilege of, you know, Princess Leia. Mm. Those are the stories that the galaxy remembers. Yeah. It's like the Jedi and the royalty and not the people who, you know, like put themselves at the front line when they were told they couldn't and saved everybody, I guess. And I that's that's so eye-opening because even last night when I was re-watching it with my mum, I turned to her and I said, you know what's really heartbreaking is that like no one will even know that they did this. Like yeah. they saved the rebel they, they saved worlds and then they died and no one will even know. And yeah. when you put it in the context like you just did, it's even more like it really hits home that you're totally right. Like that is what happens to these stories. And and I don't know, just hearing you talk about it like that makes me th- so thankful for this film now. Because I was always quite, you know, I liked Rogue One. It wasn't my favorite, but it wasn't bad. And now I'm just like, I'm so happy it exists to tell that story. Wow. Yeah, and I think if they'd, 
if the casting had been, I mean, the, the problem with the casting in this film is that there are no women of color. Mm-hmm. And when you think, I mean, if you think about like what the kind of parallels with Jin's story are, particularly in her childhood, you know, she's born, and, and it, obviously there's like such an obvious parallel with Princess Leia because they're mm. both 19 at the point where we see them in Rogue One. They almost cross paths and they don't. And it's like they have these like similar trajectories that like just slightly miss one another. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're kind of like not quite mirrored, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah, they have that relationship with each other. Um, like Leia is born into privilege, lives with aristocracy, is royalty, has an adoptive father of color in Bail Organa. Um, interestingly has a, a black father um, in Vader, who's like the bad father, um, the father who abandons her, who is the dark side and is dressed in black, is voiced by James L. Jones, a black actor, has these kind of signifiers of blackness. Mm. Um, and then Bail Organa as a man of color, but like lighter skinned is the good father. Jin born into like a kind of, I guess like a, a, a middle-class kind of family. Yeah, if her father's quite high Alan up, I guess. Like a, you know, he's an engineer or a scientist. Mm-hmm. We don't know what Lyra Erso does because Star Wars doesn't care about mothers. But, you know, you get the sense it's like a kind of <laughs> yeah. middle-class family. And yet they're living in hiding. They are under attack. They're under threat. So it's not a kind of stable middle-class family home. There's like a constant anxiety there from when she's a kid. And she's, you know, the moment that her parents are caught by the Imperial officers, they like, they're kind of instructed her to like, go and do the thing we've taught you to do when this happens. Like mm-hmm. she has a whole set of instructions about how to save herself. She's been through this, like they've run this multiple times, like go to the bunker. So I was like, like trying to think about well, what are the equivalents? Um, I guess maybe there might have been equivalents to that in Jewish families in the Second World War. Um, but like now, the one that kind of strikes me is um, maybe Syrian families, mm-hmm. like people living, you know, that kind of middle class family that is under threat of like imminent death yeah. and has like instructed their children on how to survive. So there's a, a for me, there's a like perhaps casting Jin as a woman of color might have been more effective in terms of storytelling and in like bringing out that kind of struggle and that parallel but yeah but it definitely like yeah the kind of relationship between her and Leia then also you know so Jin uh leaves I can't remember what planet she's on when she's a kid but you know she leaves the planet and then she there's a whole bit of her childhood that we don't see but she has an adopted dad who is a father of color to a white woman but again like how interesting that in that adoptive like adoptive versus real father relationship Saw Guerrera is a kind of black resistance fighter who has been outcast from the rebellion for like having tactics that they don't approve of yeah and yet her her white dad has gone to work for the for the empire and is building the desktop like I, I get that he's like put the exhaust port thing in and like, he's like made sure that she found out, but like, what if she hadn't have found out? Yeah. Like what if that message hadn't got through? Like the contingency of like, like, like that's not good enough. Like, <laughs> but like how, like, but it's so funny that they've, I mean, funny, it's not funny at all. I mean, it's racist. I mean, but like they've positioned Saul Guerrero as the bad dad. Like he's the dad that abandons her. Mm-hmm. Like her white dad is still the good dad because he was taken away by the empire. So again, like she's got this, like her, her life like maps quite neatly onto layers. Yeah. That's so interesting. Wow. And I even thought like maybe a couple of years ago, I started to think that women in Star Wars in general, they're all very kind of interchangeable. I think they're all kind of these white English rose looking brunettes, quite well spoken, 
um, you know, even like Kira and everything. And then especially when I heard all of this stuff about Ray originally being called Kira and then to later release Solo and have a character called Kira whose story mm. might as well be Ray's story because it seemed that they just couldn't be bothered to think of another woman's story. Yeah. It's so interesting then, the way they kind of converge, like you say. Uh, so actually one of the things I'm writing about in the book, um, I've just, I've done a lot of academic talks on this in the last sort of year or 18 months, um, is thinking about Leia as like, she's basically like the original Star Wars woman. And then yeah. most of the, with a few exceptions, most of the characters, most of the female characters, female human characters in Star Wars are analogs of Leia. Yeah. And it, it, again, if you think about the kind of digitization which in like in its extreme form is, you know, the kind of end point of it is Ingvild Dehler in um, Rogue One being digitally enhanced to be Carrie Fisher as, as Leia. So, so you get to Rogue One where they've done the, this digital enhancement. And then, but if you kind of trace it back, they're basically like copy and paste. Mm. And like when you do a copy of something, it's never the original thing itself. It's always like slightly transformed by the time and the space and the context that it is copied into. And you can kind of see that playing out with all of these different women because like, um, you know, you have Padme is Leia's mum and is also like in the, in the kind of press they did around the prequels, George Lucas says, you know, he cast Natalie Portman because she looks like Carrie Fisher. Like there's like a deliberate attempt to make the women look the same. Mm. Um, and then Padme, of course, has all of her clones um, and her kind of body doubles who are all interchangeable with one another. Um, I mean, Ray looks the same. Jin looks the same. Um, they actually style Rose the same. Yeah. In a way that is, you know, Rose is the first Asian American, like kind of, or, Kelly Marie Tran is the first Asian American lead in Star Wars, but they still style her to kind of fit this pattern of these white women that have come before. Um, and I mean, even like the, the kind of, it gets really creepy when you start thinking as well about like L7 in Solo, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge. And even she fits that exact pattern in terms of what she looks like, in terms of the kind of brunette, like English. Yeah. Like, so yeah, there's definitely a, there's definitely a type. Yeah, and I guess it's kind of it's disappointing when you think about it too long, isn't it? But I suppose with the sequels and you know with like Rose and Paige and everything going on in the Clone Wars with Ahsoka and the Mandalorian and stuff, I'm really hoping in the future we are seeing different types of women because I worry as well with this podcast like that it will become repetitive because so many of the women have like similar traits and stories. And like you say, they're all kind of analogs of one thing. So I, I'm really excited for the future, but also trepidatious, I guess. Cause when you look back at it and think about it too long like this, it does really, it's interesting, but sad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the women do have different arcs and characters. I mean, mm. I think, I remember again, when Rogue One came out, a lot of people, criticized the film saying they didn't like Jin. Like they didn't find her a character that they could identify with or they didn't, they found her like cold and, yeah. but I, I mean, I found like I had a great deal of affinity with her character because she felt contained and she felt like a character who, I mean, she, there's, there's a way that I think as a survivor, that character speaks to me because that character is maybe in a slightly different context, a survivor. Yeah. And the ways in which she is uneasy about being in spaces dominated by men or like dominated by men in positions of power. Um, and the way that, you know, she, her kind of affinity is not really with Cassian. It's more with Baze and Chirrut and Bodhi and the kind of more marginalized and oppressed men in those sort of political spaces yeah um so i think I, I mean there's kind of i think there's a lot of nuance in the characters and it's one of the interesting things is to think about how are they 
even in their sameness and similarity, where have they diverged from one another? Mm-hmm. And like, what there's something interesting in thinking about what those points of comparison are. Yeah. So around this time in the podcast, I normally talk about like the characters' relationship with other women in the Star Wars universe. But we've actually found that quite hard um, in every episode we've done because what we've noticed is that they don't really have them. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's still a big problem. Yeah. So I was gonna. So obviously with Leia, she becomes kind of like a mentor to Ray in some ways, and she has an amazing relationship with Holdo, which was really interesting to chat about. But with characters like I don't know, even Ray doesn't get to spend a lot of time with Rose, and she only ever looks up to Leia. She never has like a peer or a friend. And I suppose mm-hmm. with Jin. The only other woman we see her interact with is, I think it's Mon Mothma, isn't it, in yeah. The Rebellion? And she even is like an authority figure above her. She doesn't have any peers who are women. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, something that Star Wars is still terrible at hmm. is um, enabling women to have relationships with one another. And it's why I think so much of the the discourse around the sequels has pitted um, the Last Jedi against the Rise of Skywalker uh-huh. in a way that I find really unhelpful because I think it makes the Rise of Skywalker's politics look worse than they are and it overlooks a lot of the problems with The Last Jedi, which looks nice and feels like an art house film, but it's like gender politics and it's like race politics are not brilliant. Um, you know, it doesn't give any space for Ray and Rose to have a relationship with one another Leia is basically off screen for most of the film. Um, you know, obviously there were reasons for that, but it doesn't like it. That's still an ongoing thing. So even though the kind of screen time for women has steadily improved through the sequels, we're still not at a point where we, yeah, we can really have a, a conversation about how they how they speak to one another. But that's what, I mean. One of the things that I I never used to really be into like the Star Wars novels but I started reading them as part of my research mm-hmm. to, to sort of fill in the gaps and to think about, well, what, how are these characters being represented off screen? And like some of them are like so much more interesting in terms of what they do with the marginalized characters. Yeah. Like, um, Queen Shadow, for example, I actually you know I really enjoyed that. Like often I'm like, eh, okay, some of these are fine. I'm interested in them for the story, but the way they're written isn't that great. Queen Shadow I actually really loved, um, which is the the story of Padme and all of her body doubles. And like, it's lovely because it's a Star Wars story that's about interactions between and the relationships of the women. Yeah. Um, And I'm really excited for this series that I think is what's slated for 2022, which is like meant to be a, and I'm like air quoting, women-centric Star Wars series. (laughs) because, you know, they call it, as someone else pointed out on Twitter, yeah, they call all the other ones male-centric, of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really hope that that does some of this work and, yeah. like, starts to create spaces. You know, maybe women-centric means it passes the Bechdel test in more than just a five-minute conversation between two women at, like, in passing. Yeah. I definitely hope so. I really hope going forward with all these kind of Disney Plus series and stuff they've got slated in these movie trilogies that are really far in the future, that we do get to see these changes because I feel like they were slowly being built up in the sequels. Um, and I'm, yeah, I really hope we get to see them. And especially in the books, because I never was really into the books either. But this past year, since Comic-Con and meeting certain people on Twitter and stuff, I found myself a bigger part of the community than I thought I would be in a sense, I've made a lot of friendships there. And I wanted to get more involved by reading some of the books and picking up comics and stuff. And at the moment, I'm reading Black Spire, which is about the spy that Leia sent to Galaxy's Edge, um, Batu, And that is so interesting. And it's like this incredible female black lead who was like, um, who sought mentorship in Leia and then became a leader herself. And now she's got to do this important mission. And the whole, I'm only a few chapters in, but the whole first few chapters are just her kind of and Leia arguing a bit about the mission. And it's really sweet because you can tell there's so much respect between the two of them, but they're still kind of like having it out, like what's the right decision here? And yeah, definitely pick that one up next if you're interested, because I'm really enjoying it. And the character who's the lead is actually a, um, a casted character on Galaxy's Edge as well. So you can like, oh, cool. you know, like young black girls who never saw themselves in Star Wars before Janna will be able to like, 
walk up and speak to her and she's a leader and it's I think that's really exciting and like you know a little hint of the future maybe yeah I mean I'm like so desperate to see some Ray Sloan on screen who's another character in the books and um and like Dr. Afra as well mm. and like some of the the female characters who are not like straightforwardly like on the right side yeah part of resistance or the, the rebellion area mm-hmm. yeah but I think with this female-centric thing, I've seen a lot of theories that it might be Dr. Afra because she seems to be very popular at the minute in the comics and such. So that could be really interesting. I mean, I, I will watch that. Like, I mean, I'm going <laughs> to watch it, obviously, but like, I will be excited to watch that. Brilliant. Um, so we're getting very close to the end, but I just wanted to ask about your book. So, you know, this is your opportunity to like talk up Mad Big because I know it's coming out this year. So you've written the BFI Classics book on The Empire Strikes Back. Do you want to talk a bit about how that came about and your process in writing it? Yeah, I mean, I was, I feel like how it came about was really lucky. Um, I had already sort of got the contract to do this kind of bigger book, which will be out in a couple of years, you know, dependent on when we, you know, get to go back to archives and doing research and stuff. Um, So I'd already been writing about Star Wars a bit, talking about it online. I think I'd written a couple of things in the press and was approached by the editor of the series who said, we'd like to do one of these books on The Empire Strikes Back for the 40th anniversary year of the film, which is this year. Um, and would I be interested in doing it? Because I think the the rationale is that they're kind of trying to diversify the voices of the people who get to write those books. Yeah, good, um, I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, so I I kind of put together a a sort of proposal as to how I would approach the film, um, thinking all the time they're just going to say no, like they're going to say no, this Mm. is not going to, like, no one's going to say yes to this. Um, and then they said yes. So, um, I mean, it kind of follows, I mean, they're really short books. They're only, I think it's just under 30,000 words, which is tiny, you know, they're like Mm. quite small, like pocket size books almost which is actually you'd think it would be quite easy but it's a massive struggle to write that little about one film when you'll be yeah so you know they kind of follow a a rough format that you have to cover some of the production history a textual analysis or kind of close read of the film and um something about its reception but like all the time you're kind of talking about as well what makes this film a classic yeah. Like what makes it a kind of an important part of film history. Um, which, yeah, I mean, to do that in that short amount of time is impossible almost. <laughs> um, and I've got so much research and so much I wanted to say that I've just had to leave out. Um, so, but what I've tried to do is, like, first of all, like rule one was abandon the George Lucas is a genius narrative because I am so bored of it. <laughs> I'm like bored to tears by every single like and it happens in so much academic writing as well where people like have to throw a line in for no reason that like bigs up George Lucas Mm. and like it's just so bizarre to me like I don't understand like filmmaking is collaborative is creative and if you look at the production history of The Empire Strikes Back like loads of decisions were being made by many many different people like sometimes in advance and approved by George Lucas, other times without his approval because he wasn't on the set at Elstree. He wasn't on location at Finzer in Norway. Um, and yeah, so it was really to kind of get past the like great white man discourse that like overshadows all of Star Wars like writing. Mm. Um, and to like think about the the narratives of the people who we don't necessarily hear about that much, but also to take this like really historical approach and to be like, okay, what was happening at the time? Okay, like in the middle of the the, sh- the shoot on the set in England, like Thatcher gets voted in. Like Reagan is voted in in the US by the end of the year in 79. Like you had, like this film is shot, like, you know, the Star Wars film that doesn't have a resolution. It doesn't have a Hollywood happy ending. It was kind of critically, some people liked it, but it also got panned by certain critics. People really did not like the ambivalent kind of strange ending. Mm. You know, it's a film where you don't know that the good guys are going to win. 
like the dark side is taking over and it happens at the point that the left get voted out in the UK and the US. And like, that's really interesting to me. So it's things like that, that I like wanted to kind of tease out a bit more. Um, but also in reading the film, um, one of the things that I've really thought about is the way that it's shot. It's completely off kilter, sideways, diagonal, canted frames, moving cameras, like it's visually so uneasy and like restless and anxious compared to the sort of like static, like proscenium arch, like kind of grand framing of A New Hope. Um, so I've like really kind of taken that as like the central metaphor of the film and like run with it in lots of different directions. So I do like a kind of queer reading of it where I'm thinking about um, through Sarah Ahmed's work on um, like not being straight and of yeah. things being like wonky and tilted and not straight and therefore being queer. Um, thinking about like the race and camp queer coded ways that the the dark side characters are like trying to turn the characters on the light side who are always in this film white men like you know it's not like i think there's even a good there's a great line where lando says to leia um like basically like vader isn't interested in you and like thinking about that more and like just yeah. taking these kind of moments in the film and like connecting them back to the politics that was going on around it sorry i've like talked for ages and no, probably don't not be sorry that's why you're on the podcast because you have lots of interesting things to say <laughs> um so i suppose to finish on like a light-hearted note after all this really intense but so fascinating kind of like theoretical kind of views on it um i'd love to ask you five kind of rapid fire quote questions um talking like as a fan now okay okay so the first one i think we know the answer to number one favorite star wars movie Oh God, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I really struggle with this. I mean, it was, it's probably Rogue One or The Empire Strikes Back. I, I would oscillate between the two. That's fair. I'll let you have that. <laughs> um, so number two is your favourite line of dialogue in all of Star Wars. Oh, oh. Oh no, I don't know. Um, <laughs> you can say like, oh, this one for now, because it's off the top of my head. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably... I mean, I, I can't, I don't know if I can even like repeat the line back, but it's probably the one Leia has about hope mm -hmm. in The Last Jedi. She has a really lovely line about hope. Or actually the other one I like also from The Last Jedi is um, uh, Holdo. Mm -hmm. um, we are the spark that will light the fire, yeah. that will like burn down the, the First Order. I really like that kind of imagery. Yeah. It's brilliant. It's, it's, it's a favourite of many that have come on. It's brilliant. Um, okay, favourite battle or lightsaber duel? Ooh, uh, I think... Oh, actually, I think the, the lightsaber battle between Rey and Kylo in The Force Awakens might be my favourite. Like, just watching... But in the forest? Yeah, yeah. in the forest. Like, on the... Oh, God, the Starkiller base. The name still upsets me. Um... <laughs> why why did you do that to us um but like i think that's probably my favorite lightsaber battle also just seeing a woman with a lightsaber like mm -hmm. beating up adam driver like what's not <laughs> up and like there's also probably some like sexual undertones to that as well but <laughs> that's a great moment um and my favorite battle is definitely the um atats on hoth brilliant um so what would you like to see next in Star Wars, whether it's a game, book, movie, or anything else? I think, I mean, for now, I'm actually kind of done with Star Wars films and I'm happy to have a break. Mm -hmm. I quite like, I'm like kind of enjoying like delving into the books and some of the like non-screen media. Also enjoying The Mandalorian. But I think what I really want them to do is to come back in a two or three years time with a feature film that's about, um, a woman of color yeah like that's what i want i want a protagonist you know i want a black woman to lead a star wars film and i want a black woman to direct it like that's what i want to see 
like that's what I want to invest my emotional energy in yeah <laughs> okay last and final question in as little words as possible what does star wars mean to you oh my god what a question <laughs> <laughs> um star wars to me means hope like it means hope and it also means looking back on my own past and my own childhood and my own moments of trauma and my own mental health and knowing that it was always there as something that gave me like a huge amount of joy and that in itself makes me feel quite hopeful lovely Thank and you. so even like even going back i feel like there's a degree of like it making you feel more optimistic about the future I love that. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast. I really loved having you. Oh, no, um, thanks so much for having me on. Is there anything you want to plug? You want to tell any, anyone where they can find you, your Twitter and such like that? Uh, yeah, so my Twitter is Becca E. Harrison. Um, and I mean, I've got a link on there to all of the stuff that I've written about Star Wars. Amazing. And your BFI Classics book is out in October, right? And you can pre-order yeah. it? You can pre-order it, yeah. Fantastic. We'll be sure to put a link to all of that in the show notes below. And for now, thank you so, so much again. And I'm looking forward to seeing you when all this is over. <laughs> yes. Yeah. At a film festival. Hopefully. Far, far away. Yeah. <laughs>